It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The state capitol is yet another hall of power where women are saying, me too. Several state lawmakers there are accused of sexual harassment. It's a focus of our regular interview with Governor John Hickenlooper. We wanted to know how his administration is protecting tens of thousands of state workers. First, though, news that broke Thursday, his pick for the Colorado Supreme Court. The governor sat down with my colleague, Ryan Warner. Governor, welcome back to the show. Glad to be back. A nominating commission gave you three choices. How did you land on CU Boulder constitutional law professor Melissa Hart? Uh, Melissa came in, and and there are three great candidates. I I don't remember seeing three more different, more talented candidates. But in the end, Melissa talked about things that I care about, and I think the state cares about. Like what? uh, About how to use technology to lower the cost of our judicial system and how to make sure that more people have access to justice and legal representation, again, without increasing cost. Uh, she talked about how the courts deliver their opinions and the clarity of the opinions, how you could actually reduce litigation. Uh, and, you know, her reputation was uh, as a kind of a liberal, you know, academic. And the bottom line was I thought she spoke in a more pro-business sense than either of the other candidates. Am I hearing you say that you think she might make the court more efficient, even faster? Yes, but she's an innovator. And so she was the most knowledgeable of all three candidates about all the major decisions that the court had made. And and, and again, all three of them were very knowledgeable. But might she move the court in a more liberal direction? Is that something you're looking for? Pretty much. No, it's not something I'm looking for. And part of this process was we went and looked at the appointments we've made and the other justices on the Supreme Court, and then each of the major decisions. And did they vote the way we expected or would have expected based on their interviews? And the answer is no. Once someone's on that court, they act independently, and they should act independently. One of the comments that was raised against Melissa was that there was a quote on her website. She'd taken her family down to uh, Selma, Alabama, for the anniversary of one of the great civil rights marches. And uh, she had posted a quote from Ellie Wiesel, who's a great Holocaust talked, survivor. Ho- Holocaust survivor and talked about the Holocaust. And in that context, uh, he had said, and Melissa put this up on her website, we must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. And so that was taken out of context. And that was written about the Holocaust. And you know, it was presented in one of these blogs as, well, she's against business. Justice should obviously make sure everyone gets a fair shake. And when I talked to her about it, she said, of course, that I would never say that you would take sides in any kind of a, a legal situation. And the more we thought about it, I mean, how great that someone that we're looking at putting on the Supreme Court took her family to Alabama to walk across the bridge on the anniversary of that historical moment. And I Again, she's got the, the, the mind and the talent, but she also has the heart to do the job. You've now chosen the majority of the state Supreme Court justices, I'll say. And this pick replaces a Republican whom President Trump promoted to an appeals court bench. Well, and the, and the beauty of Melissa Hart is she is also a real student of the Constitution and, and a, an academic at the highest level, which is what Alison Ide provided. And I think that's very important. If you look at Alison Ide and the, the decisions she made on the state Supreme Court, they were not all conservative, right? You, what you want is that horsepower, that, the intellect that drives good decisions. To a couple of federal issues now, funding for a health insurance program for poor children and pregnant women is scheduled to run out in Colorado next month if Congress doesn't act. 
Uh, the state says more than 75,000 families in Colorado rely on this program called CHIP. Earlier this week, you and Governor John Kasich, Republican from Ohio, rallied governors from both parties to ask Congress to get on it and restore the CHIP funding. Any response so far? Uh, we've gotten some positive feedback from offices of a number of legislators and, and really from a broad cross-section of the public. And one of all the major questions facing Congress right now, one issue where you would get probably 70 votes in the Senate and probably 300 votes in the House, if, you, if they let it come to the floor, it would be chip. Any needle moving with Congress? I think this is something that's going to happen. But what's so frustrating is that Congress does not appreciate the damage that this kind of stress and anxiety creates on low-income families, low-income people who have a child who has, let's say, diabetes and, you know, is is having to face all the uncertainty of, are we going to lose our funding? It sounds like you're still uncertain as to whether Congress will act. I am uncertain, but I feel fairly confident they'll do the right thing. I just wish they'd do it now. They seem to feel that it should be a bargaining chip. This is something that should not be a bargaining chip. It shouldn't take, you know, days and weeks of, of negotiation this is for the good of the republic. Have you heard from any of these families in Colorado? And do you know if they have any realistic alternatives to get insurance after January when you've said funding specifically in Colorado would run out? Well, we have one story of one family, and we can provide the name of the, that their solution would be to leave the state of Colorado. The, the husband would quit his job. They would move back to Kansas. They'd go on to Medicaid, and that's how they would make sure that they you know, got their the coverage. Why would that require going to Kansas? So they were going to go back and live with their uh, family, uh, the grandparents, the adults in this family, and then the children would all be under one roof. Health insurance is also at stake in the tax bill, which Congress hopes to vote on before Christmas. The compromise bill released this week appears to take away the penalty for not buying health insurance, and that's expected to weaken insurance markets. But if that happens, Colorado has options. We talked to a health policy expert who says this state could follow Massachusetts and establish its own mandate to be insured. Has that come up at all in your administration? Certainly we've looked at that. You know, that's a pretty long, drawn-out procedure. It took Massachusetts several years to get to that point. So we're certainly looking at it, but that is not not an easy solution in the short term. Why can't that be overnight to just say in Colorado you have to have health insurance? Well, maybe you haven't been up on the, in the General Assembly the last couple of years, but nothing is easy. I mean, the problem is if we get rid of the mandate. Yeah, what are the consequences specifically for Colorado, do you think? It's going to drive up the costs for people getting an individual insurance. Then what happens is you're going to end up with people dropping out of coverage, which by every indication is just going to drive other people's costs up. Uh, it becomes a, a downward spiral. And yet there are some who say people ought to have that freedom. Yeah, and I respect that. But if you're really trying to expand coverage, everyone's got to pay into the system to make it work. I'd like to talk about harassment claims here at the state capitol. Formal complaints accuse three different Colorado lawmakers of sexual misconduct. This was first reported by KUNC. Many of the comments these men allegedly made or the things that they did women found offensive were inside this building. They were not against people in your administration, but you have more than 30,000 employees in the executive branch. And I wonder what kind of soul-searching you've done within your own administration as a result? Well, we've done, I mean, from the beginning, we've had training programs and taken this very seriously. And when I was in the private sector, 
in the restaurant business, we prided ourselves. I mean, I was one of the people I can proudly say I never dated an employee when I, for the 15 years I was in the restaurant business, and I never dated a customer. We just set those standards from the top. I think that what we're looking at here, and we've had a number of complaints. We've had over, I think it's 61 or 62 complaints that none in the, in the governor's office, right? These are all complaints in agencies around the state, uh, but not one. There's been no payments, uh, and we haven't gone through and, and looked at them all. But having complaints is not a bad thing, right? We're trying to change the behavior of society. And for too long, in too many places, men have used authority or positions of power to intimidate or manipulate uh, women. What's the timing of those 62 complaints? Over the last five years. Over the last five years. Um, Again, when you look at the number of employees, that's a relatively small number. But isn't it true that these remain private until either the accused or the accuser makes that public. Exactly. In other words, there's not a lot of outside eyes that can be on those 62 cases, for instance, and provide transparency. Well, but if you think about it, we want more complaints. We want women to feel free. We want them to come forward and make a complaint. If they are told that they don't have a choice, that that's going to be public, you're going to suppress the number of complaints, and that's not what we want. So has anything changed in your administration since the Me Too movement? I would like to think that we have had an environment in the state where people, where women did feel fairly uh, safe to you know, register complaints. And that Do, Doesn't what's happening in the legislative branch tell us that's not the case? No, that I women haven't the, felt the legislative. The legislative branch is very different than you know, looking at the Department of Transportation or the Department of you know, Human Services. Those cultures, each of those are large agencies with many, many employees, and they're their own cultures. You talked about those 62 cases over about five years in the executive. Is that a number you were aware of prior to Me Too, or is that information that you sought out after the KUNC reporting? No, that's information that we, at least I wasn't aware of it, so it wasn't something that had come through to me. We sought it out because we thought, hey, we have a problem here and we haven't recognized it, we better find out about it. So I just want to make it clear, you're saying today in the Hickenlooper administration on the executive side, if a woman or a man feels that they've been subject to inappropriate behavior, there is a clear method of reporting that and having it dealt with yeah, uh, we, swiftly? We, yes, we, we, well, A, we provide training for everyone in the ex- executive side. And the goal is to make sure that there's a safe environment where people can come forward. If there are women that don't, within the executive office, if they don't feel that they're safe in making those comments, that hasn't gotten to me. It's incredibly rare on the legislative side for a lawmaker to be expelled since two-thirds of their colleagues have to vote to do that. Do you think that the legislative branch is dealing with this the right way? Well, I think they're getting to the right way, and they're certainly examining what is the process, what are the the standards that have to be achieved. And I think they seem to be moving towards a place where they'll have some sort of outside uh, structure, so someone outside the General Assembly. And that political environment. And that political environment. Someone else outside that will assess the transgression and, you know, make a, a recommendation on here is what the consequence should be. Do you support that? And yeah. would you support it for your own administration? Sure. A new analysis from Moody's says Colorado is unprepared for the next recession. It could be a wake-up call 
uh, for a state budget that another analyst described to us as precariously balanced. Meanwhile, you released your budget plan for next year, and you've asked lawmakers to put more into reserves. That suggests to me that you're concerned as well. How worried are you about the budget and the state finance situation you'll leave to the next governor? Well, I think that our effort has been to create jobs, to drive entrepreneurship. And I think the economy in Colorado is as strong as anywhere in the United States. And that's not to say there can't be a recession. So we've been increasing the rainy day fund that's larger uh, almost every year. Is it as large as I want? No, I'd like to get it up to 10 or 12%. There are some outside analysts who are saying the same thing. Yeah, of course. A lot of states had 10%, for instance. And I think we're moving in that direction. If you actually take all the cash funds that we have, and there are a number, and maybe I should pull this together, in historic recessions, the state always goes into a number of cash funds that are set aside for certain purposes, but they're not primary purposes of government, right, necessarily. So there are places where in times of dire need, we can raid these cash funds. And they actually, when you add them in, they, they increase our reserve fund significantly. So I think Moody's, I mean, these guys are using one standard to judge all states just based on what they can get off the surface. Uh, I think we have an obligation to go out and begin to look at some of those cash funds. Can you put a face on those cash funds? What would you raid? Oh, I can. I'm not going to do it here because that would cause, hey, I haven't sat down and thought it through. Okay. But look at severance taxes, right? When we have a serious recession, we'll take some part or a significant part of the severance taxes, which traditionally are awarded in grants to small communities all over the the state. Often affected by oil and gas development. Yeah, often affected by oil and gas, but not always. I mean, they go all over the state, but we can take those and help us balance the budget. So that's like having an additional reserve. Now, I normally wouldn't ask you about a restaurant closing in Denver, (laughs) but this is really a question that speaks to growth and change. Wazi Supper Club was a catalyst in transforming downtown Denver in the 70s and 80s. Downtown at that time wasn't a place people necessarily wanted to visit. And a lot of people say businesses like Wazi Supper Club were what started to change that. You were later part owner of it. Now it's closing. Does losing institutions like that matter in the face of progress? And if it doesn't matter, does it at least make you a little sad? You know, when I got laid off in 1986, uh, there was an industrial psychologist that came and talked to each one of us. And, and in the nutshell of what he told each of us was that all change involves loss and all loss should be mourned. And, you know, the Wazi Supper Club, the guy who used to own that, Angelo Caragas, when I first came up with the idea and was sketching out what the floor plan of the Wine Coop Brewing Company, if we could ever raise enough money, what it would look like, I did that in the Wazi Supper Club. And I remember the first time he came and looked over my shoulder and said, what are you working on? I said, oh, we're, we're looking at how we would do this. We op- might open a brew pub two blocks from here. And he kept asking me these questions. And he says, well, what would you do different about this place, the Wazi? And I said, well, I'd probably pull that balcony out a little bit further and get more seating up there. You know, I had no idea who he was. And at the end, he said, well, I, I introduced myself as we were leaving. And he said, yeah, I'm Angelo Caragas. I own this place. <laughs> and, and I felt two inches tall. But we became friends over the years, and after he died, uh, his widow came to me personally and said, I can't keep running this restaurant, uh, and you're the one, the one person, the one company I'd want to sell it to. And you later helped take it over. Are you going to well, miss well, it? Well, we, we bought it then, and, and, and I have a tremendous emotional attachment to it. And when I read the news that it was no longer going to be the Wazi Supper Club, 
I did. I took it personally that I had not done enough to make sure that it was going to stay the Wazi Supper Club and evolve, right? No, no restaurant can stay the same and succeed. It's got to keep investing in itself. It's got to keep finding out what new things the public wants and delivering it to them at a fair price. So, I mean, I do feel a sense of loss. Governor, thank you for being with us. You bet. Always a pleasure. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper speaking with Ryan Warner. So you heard the governor reminisce about the Wazi Supper Club. Well, we asked on Facebook what places you miss that have disappeared. Luke Sinclair of Denver recalled how special the French restaurant La Centrale was for him growing up. It closed in 2015 after 34 years in Denver's Golden Triangle. That was probably my first real date place with, well, my now wife, but then we were just uh, dating back in high school when we were 17. We went there for Valentine's Day. Jennifer Daigle from Aurora told us she particularly misses Giuseppe's Old Depot, which was a train station turned Italian restaurant in early 70s Colorado Springs. It closed in 2011. My family and I would go to Giuseppe's before the Christmas parade every year. So it was kind of a tradition. Uh, And then when I grew up and uh, I had kids, I brought them to the depot because the trains go right by the depot. And of course, for little kids, that's an amazing thing to see the trains just zooming right by. Virginia Berkeley, a member, a board member here at CPR, talked about stepping into another world when she would go to the downtown tea room at the Denver Dry. The tea room closed in 1987 after nearly 80 years as a fixture in downtown Denver. Every Christmas, my grandmother took my sister and I downtown to see all of the animated Christmas displays that were in the windows of the department stores. And after we saw them, she would take us up to the tea room to have an elegant lunch. My grandmother had us even wear gloves, which she let us take off to eat our lunch, which was quite a blessing. Others said Victoria Station and the Riviera in Glendale and Foss Drug in Golden. So what places do you miss? Find this conversation on our Facebook page, CPR News, and add your memories. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Before the break, we heard from Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. Yesterday, he appointed University of Colorado law professor Melissa Hart to the state Supreme Court. For a closer look now at Hart's experience and the impact she could have on the court, I'm joined by Denver lawyer Christopher Jackson, who tracks major cases in state and federal courts. Chris, welcome. Great to be here. Just a little insight first about Melissa Hart. What's she known for in the legal community? Well, Professor Hart has a glittering legal resume. Uh, She did her undergraduate and her law degrees at Harvard. Um, She also clerked on the U.S. Supreme Court, and she's now a tenured professor at CU Boulder, which is a nationally ranked law school. So she's had a really successful career so far. And you mentioned her being a legal scholar. Are there areas of law that she specializes in? Yeah, I think there are a few. Um, She does a lot of constitutional law, and then she also does a fair amount of employment law. And recently, she's taken up the cause of access to justice and has been working in Colorado on that. She is widely viewed as the most liberal of the three women Governor Hickenlooper considered for this appointment. Hickenlooper said he thought she took a more pro-business line than the other candidates. Are there legal issues she's dealt with that have led to that perception of her as a liberal? I think there are a a few of those legal issues. So, for example, she wrote an amicus brief in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. 
Um, uh, she did that on behalf of LGBT individuals in Colorado and also organizations like One Colorado and Planned Parenthood. Um, she's written a few academic works on employment discrimination. And then the other uh, issue, I think, too, is that she's written a couple of articles defending affirmative action. So I, I think that's where a lot of that perception comes from. And an amicus brief is a friend of the court, correct? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we should note that there was strong criticism of Hart's appointment just this morning from Republican State Representative Polly Lawrence, who said, I'm quoting here, we don't need ivory tower leftists from Boulder sitting on our Supreme Court. She also pointed out that all four of Hickenlooper's court appointments have come from the Denver-Boulder area. Uh, but having said that, Ms. Hart did back Republican President Trump's appointment of Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's exactly right. And I think the other point I'd make about that is that there's a difference between a person's personal political beliefs and how they would decide cases as a judge. And I think the best jurists, which uh, Professor Hart will be, are the ones who can sort of set aside what they want the case to be or how it to turn out and to look at the legal reasoning and make a decision based on that. I want to talk about the entire Colorado Supreme Court. Do you expect a big change in in the court with soon-to-be Judge Hart on board? I don't think that it's going to be a major sea change. Um, I was actually looking at this uh, yesterday, and it turns out that almost exactly two-thirds of the cases that the Supreme Court decides are unanimous, uh, and only 19 percent of them are decided four to three, where one vote might actually make a difference. Now, why is that? Why do you think that is? You know, there are probably a lot of reasons. Uh, The Colorado Supreme Court, I think, just isn't as ideological as, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court has arguably become in the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, And a lot of that may be uh, the members of the court. It may also just be the kinds of issues that the Colorado Supreme Court is dealing with. This is the fourth Supreme Court justice the governor has appointed since he took office. That is a majority of the seven-member court. Have those decisions shifted to the court to the right or, or to the left in general? I don't think you could see too much of a shift. Uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, the governor can only pick between the three finalists that the Colorado Supreme Court Nominating Commission selects. And so he's a little bit sort of cabined in who it is that actually ends up on the court. Well, let's talk about this independent commission. Does it make the court less ideological, perhaps, let's say, than the the federal Supreme Court? I think it does. And I, I at least personally think it's a great system. A lot of states have judges that just stand for popular election. And you see a lot of politics getting in injected into the judiciary because of that. In Colorado, because we have these nominating commissions, they're still those members, I think, are still appointed by the governor, but it sort of provides a check against partisan politics getting involved in the judiciary. But they will be voted on every 10 years, right, by the by the public. Exactly. So Professor Hart will have a two-year term, then she'll stand for a retention election, and if she's retained, uh, then she'll serve for 10 more years. Got it. Are there major cases coming up that Ms. Hart is likely to help decide? There are a few. I was looking over the last couple of days just to see big cases that might come up. Uh, one of them, I think, is a case called Rooks versus Rooks. Uh, it's a case actually that I, I wrote an amicus brief on. Uh, but I, I will just say that the the issue that was addressed there or that the court will address is how to uh, allocate frozen pre-embryos between a former spouse, between two former spouses when they get divorced. And and that's that's going on now. That will be happening relatively soon. Yes. Oral argument is scheduled for January. And so uh, the new Justice Hart will participate in that case. And also most likely a case dealing with the state's powers to regulate oil and gas development, it sounds like. Uh, that's right, too. There is a case, the Martinez decision that uh, I just checked yesterday. The Supreme Court hasn't actually decided whether they're going to take up that case. But that's another one that I think people will be paying very close attention to. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Christopher Jackson is a lawyer at Sherman and Howard in Denver and tracks federal and state courts. The other two candidates the governor considered were Denver lawyer Marcy Glenn and Alamosa judge Patty Swift. 
Let's hear the story now of a World War II veteran from Colorado. My name is Virgil Hughes. I was uh, born in 1923 in western Kansas. I was drafted into the Army early in World War II, but uh, I stayed in for 43 and a half years. And the only combat I was ever in was in Europe during World War II. I was in the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge began this month 73 years ago. It was Nazi Germany's final attack on the Western Front, a surprise assault against the Allied forces in the Ardennes Forest. The month-long battle claimed well over 100,000 lives. In our continued effort to document the lives of World War II veterans living in Colorado, we spoke with Hughes in his Wheat Ridge home. He was a rifleman with the 78th Infantry Division and turned 21 during the battle on the northern part of the Bulge. What I really remember most about it is it was cold. My, it was cold. It was dreadfully cold. He slept in the snow and the mud, never able to get warm or dry. And as the Nazis ran out of fuel, it doomed their western advance, and they were forced to withdraw in January 1945. One way Hughes got through the battle was with music. My background is from a Welsh family, and Welshmen are a little different about music. They sing constantly. I mean all the time. You sing when you're sad or when you're happy or when you're working or whatever you do, you're singing. And he sang when he wasn't fighting, but some soldiers weren't fans. They'd say, Are you trying to announce to the Germans where we are? <laughs> no, not quite. But some of the other people would say, Virgil, it's uh, early in the evening. Uh, we need some music. Okay, what do you want to hear? Well, I want to hear Nearer My God to Be. Okay, I can say, Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. And some of the other people would join in. It's sort of a put on. It was something to do for boredom, but it was important because morale is tough in a combat unit like that. You're just constantly under mental strain. And it wasn't just singing he was good at. He played multiple musical instruments and still does. After the Battle of the Bulge, the Army planned to ship Hughes to Japan, but... First in a test in the United States-New Mexico desert, then 5,000 miles away at Hiroshima, and then again at Nagasaki, came the world-shaking explosions of the atomic bomb. I have received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. After President Truman declared the war over, he stayed in the military. I was never in combat in Korea or Vietnam or any of the other. And it was just happenstance. I wasn't chickening out. I just never had an assignment. And the principal reason was that I'm a good instructor. He taught at military academies, and with the Army, he also helped on the home front, assisting with natural disaster relief. And he ran the Hughes Dulcimer Company in Denver for decades. They made reproductions of antique instruments. Hughes says his hearing is going from being around artillery fire for too long, but he still loves to play musical instruments. He's in a few bands. And at nearly 94, he still sings with a local choir. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Thank you.
That's opera singer Charity Tilleman Dick, who grew up in Denver. She's made the Billboard Classical Chart and performed at venues like New York's Lincoln Center. It sounds like she's got a pretty healthy set of lungs, too. But over the last 15 years, charities have failed twice, forcing two lung transplants. Her new book is called The Encore. Charity, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much, Nathan. It's a pleasure to be here. You recorded uh, this song we're hearing in, in 2013, I believe, after your second lung transplant. It's called Rolled Between. And while you wrote the music for it, these words, death like a narrow sea divides this heavenly land from ours, but timorous mortals start and shrink to cross this narrow sea. You found those lyrics somewhere else. Why did they speak to you? You know, I I spent a lot of time in the Library of Congress researching early American hymns and, and folk music. And I I have seen so many people spend so much time worrying about about death um, when when there is so much life to live and and so I I felt like it was a wonderful a wonderful lyric that that helped us remember that it's not that scary the thing that's scary is not living the lives that we're meant to live. You've fought lung disease for more than 15 years, thus the the two transplants, and you're doing pretty well now, but tell us what a day in your life is like dealing with this. Oh, my goodness. Well, I wake up each morning and I take a handful of pills. I think the the first the first dose has about about seven that i that I take at eight in the morning. and um and then i I get up, i I eat breakfast, I respond to emails, I sing for about an hour, and then I take a, another handful of about of about fifteen pills uh, around lunchtime. and um, and then you know I have a big family. There, there are eleven kids, and so I usually see them somewhere. So, not all of them, but if, but a few, or or chat with them in the afternoon. And I, I respond to posts on social media. And I, I think my my life is a lot like like a lot of artists. We have to be scrappy. Yeah. We have to get our work done. I just I just add a lot of drugs into the mix, <laughs> which some artists do too. Mine are just a little different. They don't have the fun side effects. Right. Well, I, and are those to keep your lungs healthy and and, and going or? You know, interestingly, there are two medications that I three, excuse me, that I take to control my my immune system so they don't attack my lungs. Um, Because anytime there's a foreign object in your body, it's the immune system's job to attack that. And you know, that's, that's where where miscarriages come from. Mm. uh, Because there's something foreign, there's something different inside of you. And usually that's a germ. But in fact, you know, it's it's these things that are different from ourselves that allow us to continue as a species and, and they allow me to continue in my life. 
there's some interesting, I feel like there's some interesting lessons right now. There, there are a lot of people who are afraid of those who are different, when in truth, they're, they're what allow our society to, to push forward and to grow. Well, I want to go back here a bit. You, you grew up in Denver, one of 11 yes. children. Uh, yes. and, a, and a couple of your grandparents are pretty well known. Your grandmother's name may be familiar to many Coloradans. Tell us that. Um, well, my grandmother is Nancy Dick. She was the first female lieutenant governor of Colorado, and she got there as a single mom. She had three kids. And um, interestingly, one of one of the things that inspired her to run was the death of my grandfather, who died in a car crash. And she felt that his death was just so pointless. And as organ transplantation became a thing, driver donor legislation was being proposed in some places. And so that was one of her signature pieces of legislation when she was in the state house, was she pushed through the second piece of driver donor legislation in the country. Little did we know about 50 years later, legislation like that would save my life. So a very strong connection there that almost, you know, surprisingly. Yes. And then my, my grandfather, Tom Lantos, was um, was in office for, for a long time. And my, my brother, Levi, is, is running for Congress in, in Aurora. So um, we, have a, we have a long dedication to Colorado and to public service. So public service for them. But you uh, started in singing and you started a long time ago, right, to sing? I did. I did. I went to my first opera when I was... Ugh, I always forget whether I was four or five, but I was a little a little bugger. Young. And yes, yes. And my oldest sister, Dulcia, um, her, her best friend was playing Gretel in a community production of Hansel and Gretel. And at that point, I knew I wanted to be an artist, but my favorite medium was Sharpie on my mother's dining room wall. So she was <laughs> very eager to get me out of her house. Um, and, uh, and so she sent me off with Dulcia. And I had heard opera on the radio before. My mom used to listen to it when I was a kid. And I found it kind of dull. But but when I arrived and there was this set covered in candy, which was very appealing, um, I was intrigued. And then the singers began to sing. And with the Beach Boys, the producer always talked about the wall of sound. Oh, yes. And, and he would do it with, you know four pianos and 27 horns and 132 microphones. I'm exaggerating. But but with opera, you create that same wall of sound with good vocal technique. And I remember this these voices just washing over me and hoping that maybe one day I'd be able to, to sing like that. So that started your path. Uh, you eventually attended Regis University in Northwest Denver starting at age 14. How did that I, come I about? Well, you know, we were we were all homeschooled. My my mother wanted my brother to start school when he was four. Um, she just felt he was very bright and that he was ready for kindergarten. But uh, but there was a pretty hard and fast rule that if you were younger than five, you couldn't start kindergarten. And my mother my mother was very torn until she realized she had a teacher's credential and two graduate degrees and an undergraduate degree and she could teach her son kindergarten and then my sister was mortified when he was going to leave for school so we so it just stuck and um and we all enrolled in school early but i felt very intent on proving myself and when i when i got to regis at 14 after taking all the requisite tests um i didn't really understand protocol. So one of the first things I did was march into the president's 
office oh. at Regis University, Father Michael Sheeran, and set up a meeting because they didn't have a music program, which I just thought was was not acceptable. Um, and, and and so they were very tolerant of me, and I ended up doing quite well there. Um, I studied politics and economics, but but uh, in the end, in the end, I felt my calling was to something else. But but there wasn't there a teacher there that told your mom that there was something special about your voice, something that really yes. drew her to you. There, there was a, a teacher named Barbara Wolin, and after the first recital, my my mother went up to her and she said, "Oh, thank you, thank you for everything you've done for charity and and for all the kids. They they all just love working with you." And um, and Barb said, "Well." Well, I, I love working with them, but, you know, Charity's voice is, is different. And she said, I know they all have such different, wonderful voices. And Barb said, no, no, Charity Charity could actually do this. And and I think it was the first time my mother realized that I could have a future as a, as a professional singer. After university, you were accepted to a very prestigious music school, the List Academy of Music in Hungary, at 19. And it looked like you were headed toward a great career, but you started having these symptoms of lung disease. How did you start to, to feel that, and what happened? So the first time was actually when I was still in Colorado. I was managing my dad's city council bid, and it was the day after the um, it was the day after the first election, mm. which we'd won, and we went out to do visibility, and I, I fainted in the middle of Federal Boulevard, oh. and the the paramedics were called and. And they said, look, you know, if you haven't had breakfast, if you haven't had anything to drink, this could just be fatigue. You have very low blood pressure. But it also could be something more serious. And in a big family, you never want it to be something more serious. There are enough problems to worry about. So I said, no, I'm sure it's it's low blood pressure. But then I fainted again when I got to Hungary twice when dancing. And once again when, when running to catch a tram. And... Um, and I started to hear my my heart's valves at night. You know, it, it seemed like they would snap open and and closed, and and they'd keep me awake. And I thought I was just paranoid, um, but it it turned out to be something much more serious. So, was being from that that large family, you 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 kind of kept that inside internally because you didn't want to to make a fuss. I think that having a grandmother who was a single mother on one side, and grandparents who were Holocaust survivors on the other side, kind of taught us all to, to buck up and <laughs> and deal deal with, with the challenges that life throws your way. And you, you never want to be the the problem child. Um, and and so I, I think that that perhaps we would have found it earlier. But I don't think it would have changed my long term prognosis significantly. Um, I was supposed to die within within any amount of time, because I was diagnosed with a stage four case of idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, which at the time had a two to five year life expectancy. Um, and and I'm here 15 years later. So, so it turned out all right. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Charity Tilleman Dick. She was born in Denver and is a professional opera singer, but she's also struggled with lung disease. Uh, before we left, we learned about her, 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 her lung issues and how that came about. And, and, and I want to get back to that, how shocking it was for you at age 20 to find out that, that your life could very well be over very soon. It was quite shocking and it was challenging. But the truth is, any of our lives could be over very soon. We all wake up every morning with the faith that society is going to move forward and that we aren't going to be hit by a Mack truck and that that life will, will continue. But all of our lives 
can seem to change in an is- instant when we're reminded of our own mortality. Um, when in truth, that, that mortality hangs over everyone all of the time, uh, whether or not we're aware of it. And so, so I felt like the best thing to do was, was to continue to live my life uh, in, in the best way that I could. And, and what I wanted to do was sing. And so I, so I kept on doing that. But, but a doctor told you that you'd be risking your life if you ever, ever sang again. Uh, of course, you didn't follow that advice. Uh, <laughs> with your life in the balance, why didn't you say, all right, all right, time to do something else? I, I take my doctor's advice very seriously, but this this specialist, I I did a lot of research to see if there was any connection between singing or vocal activity or overexertion of of the lungs and and death, and there there wasn't. And then I talked to a few other specialists, some by email, some by phone, um, and and a couple in person, and none of them seemed to think that this connection between singing and pulmonary arterial hypertension existed. And so so I I kept on singing, but it did mean giving up some things that were very important to me. I, I anticipated I'd come back to Colorado and live there, but the altitude exacerbated my symptoms. So mm-hmm. I, I moved to Baltimore where there was a medical trial going on and where I'd already been accepted to conservatory a few years before. And I, I started going to school there. Um, I stopped eating salt and <laughs> I, I started taking huge doses of sildenafil, which is also known as Viagra. Um, it was originally developed for pulmonary arterial hypertension, but the trials revealed an interesting side effect in male patients, which was far more lucrative. So um, it, it was, was turned into Viagra instead of, instead of a treatment for pulmonary hypertension first. Well, dealing with this, with this disease, the idea of losing the ability to speak comes up again and again in this book. And it's not just your singing voice, but your, there were times, you know, weeks at a time you were hospitalized on a respirator, you couldn't talk. As somebody who's been told since she was a child that your voice was a true gift, what was it like for you not being able to use that gift? Uh, not being able to communicate was extraordinarily challenging. And also having having the concern that when I when I regained my voice ultimately that I that I wouldn't be able to sing was um was really a, a challenge. Mm. In the same breath, having to relearn to breathe was so physically challenging that that it wasn't until later in the process of relearning to breathe that I even thought about it. I remember sitting in my hospital bed and all of these alarms going off because because I wasn't getting enough oxygen. And um, and this man came and he knelt down by my bed. He said, I know it feels like you're drowning all of the time, but you're not. You'll you'll be all right. You just need to, to keep on trying to breathe. And this was when I was on the respirator. And it was true. For, for two months, I felt like I was drowning every day of my life. Mm. How did your voice change once the transplant took place? Did did you have to? You said you had to learn how to, to breathe again. Essentially, I like, did. Yeah. I did, and and the only way I was able to learn how to breathe was when an old director called my mother, and she she told her she said, you know, tell Charity that she needs to remember how to sing and how to breathe when she sings, and you know, you when when you are a student of voice, a lot of time is just dedicated to learning how to breathe. And 
We think of breathing from our lungs, but most of our breath actually comes from muscle activity in our abdomen, in our glutes, and in our lower back. And when I remembered that, within 10 days, I was off of the respirator after a two-month struggle to to get off. And um, and so it, it was a real change in, in the experience of, of getting off of that respirator. But relearning to, to sing was another challenge. And the first time I tried was about three weeks after I got home from the hospital where I'd been for 100 days. It was shortly after New Year's in 2011. And I... I, or 2010, excuse me. Hmm. I I sang "Smile," and it was this oh, the tiny... Charlie Chaplin song, correct? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I won't go on for for <laughs> copyright reasons, but um, but it's a wonderful, wonderful song made famous by Nat King Cole. And I have this kind of big, booming voice, and I have for many years. And it was this wisp of a voice. I still had my pitch and the intonation, but it was very different from anything that I had ever heard or sung with before um, that I started working every day um, trying to get that voice back, which which I eventually did. It was a little different the first time. I, I never felt like I got a complete breath, but but I did, I did you, sing again. You did. I, I want to skip all the way forward, all the way forward to the second transplant. Uh, we were very short on time, but, but there was this remarkable friendship that developed after the second transplant with a woman named Esperanza Tufani. She's the daughter of the woman Woman whose lungs you received in the second transplant. How did you meet? We met through a mutual friend, and she had become friends with me when I was in the hospital. And then she'd she'd gone to a prayer meeting, and there was a there was a young woman from their neighboring congregation who had joined, and she brought a letter to share with the girls there. And as she was reading this letter, my friend recognized the author, which which was myself, and she connected us. And it turned out that Esperanza has a beautiful, beautiful voice. It's the part I love most Each night I close my eyes and pray That we will reach out Singing with her must have been just amazing for both of you, I'm assuming. It was amazing to share this moment with the young woman whose choice had, had brought me life and whose whose mother's lungs I was I was singing with. There are so many things that divide us as a society, and more than anything, I think that organ donation reminds us of our common humanity. I, I sing with the lungs and the breath of an immigrant, and I am alive today because of her little family who chose, in, in the face of life's most devastating challenge, to, to turn towards hope, to turn towards life, and, and that's why I'm here. Really briefly, I want to end with a portion of an aria you sang at the Guggenheim Museum last year. It's called Ariana's Aria from the opera Ariana Lecouvier. I want you to read those lyrics real quick in English. They, they, they say, it says, listen, I'm scarcely breathing. I'm but a humble servant of the brilliant creator who offers the words that I impart to the heart. Those are really very powerful words. Do, you, do they stick with you deeply? 
It is the most spectacular aria because more than any piece in all of operatic literature, it's about how we are we are portals for the good that comes out of us, and and it's been a very important thing for me to remember in my life. Charity Tilleman Dick is an opera singer. She's from Denver, and her new book is called The Encore. You can read an excerpt at CPR.org. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. <laughs>